Good evening. Hurricane Ian exits Florida. Now it's bringing torrential rains to South Carolina. A sailor is acquitted of charges. He torched a Navy ship. Putin welcomes the Donbass into Russia. How close is the world to nuclear war? The pipeline whodunit, Kissinger on Russia, and Cory Booker spars with Tom Cotton over fentanyl. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday, September 30th, 2022. A revived Hurricane Ian pounded coastal South Carolina on Friday, ripping apart piers and flooding streets after the ferocious storm caused catastrophic damage in Florida, trapping thousands in their homes and leaving at least 27 people dead. The director of the National Hurricane Center is Jamie Rome. He warned South Carolinians, don't underestimate a tropical rainstorm, especially at night. So if you're watching us from central North Carolina, things are going to go downhill really quickly in the next few hours. Um, And with that, the risk shifts to more of a flood, inland flood risk from the heavy rain. So everything in this red area here, this this red area in this graphic, um, has a high risk of of flooding type rains. I mean, heavy rains that create flooding. So with the sun going down, um, sometimes it's not evident that the roads are blocked. There's trees in the road or there's ponding in the road. So it's going to be really dangerous to move about tonight in uh, North Carolina and portions of, of South Carolina. I really want to urge you to like get wherever it is you're going to go and just stay there because we, we, we inadvertently lose a lot of people after these storms uh, due to just driving into roads and tree limbs down and that sort of stuff. So really be careful tonight. Ian left a broad path of destruction in Florida, flooding areas on both of its coasts, tearing homes from their slabs, demolishing beachfront businesses and leaving more than two million people without power. Thousands are trapped. One resident of Naples, Florida, told this reporter about huddling with extended family and neighbors without electricity as power lines were downed by the winds. And a military judge today acquitted a sailor of arson in a fire that destroyed the USS Bonhomme Richard, a $1.2 billion naval assault ship. Ryan Sawyer Mays, 21, deeply exhaled when the verdict was read. He put both hands on the defense table, broke into sobs, and hugged supporters in the audience at Naval Base San Diego. Outside the courtroom building, Mays read a brief statement to reporters. I've been waiting a long time. I could say that the past two years have been the hardest two years of my entire life as a young man. I've lost time with friends. I've lost friends. I've lost time with family. And my entire Navy career was ruined. Prosecutors presented no physical evidence during the nine-day trial that the sailor set the ship on fire, while the defense chipped away at the credibility of a key witness who changed his account over time. Gary Barthel, a former Marine judge advocate who represented Mays, told reporters the ship's lower vehicle area became a junkyard, and I believe throughout this entire process, the Navy was attempting to clean up their mess by accusing Seaman Mays of these allegations. Prosecutors admitted the ship was a mess, but accused May of a sucker punch from behind because he was angry at washing out of the Navy SEALs program. The defense held it was a shoddy probe that failed to collect evidence of numerous possible causes for the fire. In world news, the clash between Russia and Ukraine escalated today as President Vladimir Putin proclaimed the annexation of four partially occupied Ukrainian regions. 
At the ceremony on Friday, Putin said Russia has four new regions, calling the residents of Ukraine's occupied Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia regions our citizens forever. You know that in Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic, in Zaporozhye and Kherson regions, referenda were held. All the votes were calculated and the outcomes are known. People have made their choice. And this choice is beyond any doubt. Today we are going to sign the treaties on admitting the Donetsk People's Republic, Lugansk People's Republic, Zaporozhye region and Kherson region. I am sure that the Federal Assembly will support constitutional laws on admitting to Russia four new regions, four new constituent entities, because it is the will of millions of people. In one of his toughest anti-American speeches in more than 20 years in power, Putin signaled he was ready to continue what he called a battle for a greater historical Russia, slammed the West as neo-colonial and as out to destroy his country, and accused Washington and its allies of blowing up the Nord Stream gas pipelines, raising the specter of nuclear war. The U.S. is the only nation in the world that used nuclear weapons twice destroying the towns of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Let me remind you that together with the, with the U.K., the U.S. during World War II annihilated Dresden, uh, uh, Hamburg and uh, Cologne. And that well, there was no rationale behind that. There was no need to destroy with air bombardment these great cities. They wanted to do that to intimidate the Soviet Union. That was their only goal. They left the West left a horrible uh, history in Vietnam where they used napalm and other horrible tactics. President Biden directly responded to Putin's comments. He says the West is not scared of the nuclear armed states threats. America and its allies are not going let me emphasize are not going to be intimidated are not going to be intimidated by Putin and his reckless words and threats. He's not going to scare us and he doesn't or intimidate us. Putin's actions are a sign he's struggling. The sham referenda he carried out and the this routine he put on. Don't worry, it's not on there if you're looking, okay? The, uh, um, he, uh, the sham routine that he put on this morning showing the unity and, you know, as people holding hands together. Well, the United States is never going to recognize this. And quite frankly, the world's not going to recognize it either. He can't seize his neighbor's territory and get away with it. It's as simple as that. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan admitted, though, there is a risk of nuclear war as long as threats are being made on either side. There is a risk, given all of the loose talk and the nuclear saber-rattling by Putin, uh, that he would consider this, and we've been equally clear about what the consequences would be. We have communicated that directly to the Russians. We do not presently see indications about the imminent use of nuclear weapons. We are, of course, monitoring that carefully and staying in close consultation with allies and partners. But this is something that we are attuned to, taking very seriously, and communicating directly with Russia about, including the kind of decisive responses the United States would have if they went down that dark road. Is the risk of that higher now than it was six or seven months ago? 
Well, what's interesting is that at various points over the course of this conflict, including right at the outset, Putin has brandished the nuclear card. He's doing it again. So the risk has been there from the start. It's there today. I'm not going to characterize its exact level, only to say that we have been taking this seriously for some time and we continue to take it seriously now. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham spoke at a news conference on bipartisan legislation aimed at Russia. He says although Ukraine isn't part of NATO, a nuclear attack on the country, on Ukraine, should be considered an attack on the Western alliance. So this is a defining moment for the world when it comes to territorial integrity and saying no to nuclear blackmail. Here's my view. I've talked to Senator Blumenthal about this. If he would do such a thing, if Putin would actually explode a nuclear weapon inside of Ukraine to stand all of us down and back us off, I think the reaction should be overwhelming. It should be catastrophic to Russia, as uh, Mr. Sullivan said. I support that statement. I hope NATO will echo that statement. But from my point of view, uh, the use of a nuclear weapon by Russia and Ukraine would be an attack on NATO itself. The radiation would not be confined to Ukraine. You would be irradiating parts of Europe that are under the NATO banner. So if that day ever come, and I hope and pray it doesn't, that should be considered by NATO writ large, the United States, as an attack by Russia on NATO itself. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. In related news, Ukraine's president countered Russia's move with a surprise application to join the NATO military alliance. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, signed an accelerated NATO membership application. Although Turkey has been slow to support Ukraine joining a 30-member alliance born out of World War II that obligates all its members to uh, fight if anyone is attacked, all 30 must also approve any new members. The co-founder of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki Peace Committee in Washington, D.C. is John Steinbach. He says the threat of nuclear war is very real. The world is probably as close to nuclear war now as any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis and since uh, 1983 and the Abel Archer uh, uh, Crisis. So, so I, I think the biggest concern that I have is what what is, seems to be the almost total breakdown in communication between uh, Russia and the United States, and, and uh, this is very clearly directly uh, a conflict between the United States and Russia. Uh, it's a proxy war uh, being fought in Ukraine, and uh, and the, the lack of communication and the demonization on both sides, but especially the demonization of Russia and the personification of Putin as the face of evil is, is very, very concerning. And it, 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 the biggest concern is that both sides have uh, walked this very, very far forward. And the question is, is, how do they back off? Do you have an answer to that question? It's going to be very, very difficult because we no longer have the intermediate range forces agreement. Uh, Bush uh, removed us from that. And then Trump unilaterally abrogated the ABM treaty. And those are the two cornerstones of lower, of raising the threshold of nuclear war. They're gone now. And we have a situation where uh, you have uh, missiles in Europe, you have missiles now in Romania and Poland, the U.S. missile missiles. You have Russia's hypersonic missiles. You have uh, a hot war with NATO pouring hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine. I just don't know how we, how we back off from that. 
There was an attempt at negotiations uh, with Turkey and uh, several other nations were negotiating that, and then particularly the United Kingdom and the United States got involved. This was back in March. Things backed off, and right now it's a game of chicken. Neither side appears to be wishing to play. From Russia's point of view, and, I, and it's really important to understand Russia's point of view, this is an existential issue, and it affects the very state of Russia, and it affects uh, 500 years, 1,000 years of history. From their point of view, it is the very survival of Mother Russia itself. From the point of view of the U.S. and NATO, it, it represents basically a shift from a unilateral world controlled by the U.S. to a multilateral world where China and India and Brazil and South Africa and so on are exerting more and more and more independence, if you will. So it's, uh, this, is a, this is a key change, uh, and we'll see how, how it's negotiated, but uh, uh, it, it's, it's happening as we see it today. What if a nuclear bomb went off in Ukraine? What would be the response? It's not part of NATO. Whichever side would use it, every single war game that's, that I have ever seen results in full-scale nuclear war. And the A-bomb survivors say that if nuclear weapons are ever used, it's going to be the end of the world if they cannot be contained. The situation is not a, not a good situation. And, and both sides seems, seem to be quite desperate here. Can you speculate on who might have been behind the explosions that cut the Nord Stream 1 and 2 natural gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea? Was the U.S. responsible for that? Uh, I mean, the Baltic Sea is basically a NATO, NATO lake. And so I would imagine that if Russia was responsible for it, for whatever reason, we would have evidence. And the fact that there's absolute silence over what actually happened, in my mind, tends to point the finger toward the U.S. or the U.S. and some, some kind of NATO involvement, because somebody did it. Why would Russia bomb their own billion, multi-billion dollar pipeline? Or, or the U.S. or the U.S. knows what happened, and the fact that there's absolute silence on this, the fact that Russia is demanding the Security Council investigate, I, you know that, you know this this is very very serious stuff because we're looking at uh, Germany facing absolute disaster this winter. I mean, the specter of people in Europe freezing to death, perhaps starving to death, is lending itself to this current crisis. President Ronald Reagan and Russian leader Mikhail Gorbachev signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in 1987. This made nuclear war less likely by dismantling hair-trigger missile systems in Europe. The treaty was ended by Donald Trump in 2019, contributing to tensions with Russia. Because of treaties, the number of nuclear weapons has gone down from 70,000 to less than 15,000 today. But today's weapons are more accurate and larger and more usable. As mentioned in the previous interview, it's still uncertain who is responsible for sabotaging the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. President Putin on Friday accused the West of sabotaging the Russia-built and German-owned natural gas pipelines under the Baltic Sea that lead to Germany. U.S. diplomats have asserted Russia bombed its own pipelines to destabilize the West, although a new pipeline connecting Norway to Germany is about to be inaugurated. The accusations carried over to a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. Later, President Biden denied the Russian allegations as a lie. It was a, a deliberate act of sabotage. Uh, 
And now the Russians are pumping out disinformation and lies. We're going to work with our allies to get to the bottom exactly what it, precisely what happened. And as at my direction, I've already begun to help our allies enhance the protection of this critical infrastructure. And at the appropriate moment when things calm down, we're going to be sending divers down to find out exactly what happened. We don't know that yet exactly, but we're not just don't listen to what Putin is saying. What he's saying we know is not true. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken added the U.S. is helping with the investigation into who bombed the pipelines. We've been in very close contact with uh, our partners in, in Europe, notably with, uh, with Denmark and Sweden. Uh, we are supporting the investigation into, um, into these attacks on the pipelines and working to uh, be able to uh, determine uh, who's responsible. But I don't want to get ahead of those investigations. Uh, that work is ongoing. Um, In related news, the United States brought its condemnation of Russia to the United Nations Security Council today in New York, where a measure declaring the annexation of the Donbass as illegal was approved by 10 of the 15 members of the council. Russia vetoed it, and Brazil, China, Gabon, and India abstained. Blinken had this to say before the vote. We're also taking action today at the United Nations Security Council to hold Russia accountable for the sham referenda and the purported annexations. If Russia blocks the Security Council from carrying out its responsibilities, we'll ask the UN General Assembly, where every country has a vote, to make clear that it's unacceptable to redraw borders by force. Every country has a stake in condemning these steps. Under UN rules, the General Assembly meets automatically within 10 days for the 193-member body to scrutinize and comment on the vote. Any use of the veto by any of the Council's five permanent members triggers a meeting. And a ghost from the past weighed in today on relations between Russia and the West. 99-year-old former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger says Russia has already lost the war in Ukraine. Russia has, in a way, already lost the because the capacity it had in the entire post-World War II period, and you might even argue in some respects since the Napoleonic period, but let's confine ourselves to the post-World War II period, its capacity to threaten Europe with conventional attack has now been demonstrably Kissinger says Russia can no longer threaten Europe with conventional forces. Henry Kissinger served under former President Richard Nixon during the Vietnam War. He's widely credited with prolonging a conflict he knew the U.S. had already lost to achieve what Nixon called peace with honor. And finally, with overdose deaths in the United States at record levels, primarily due to the powerful opiate known as fentanyl, the GOP was stymied in the attempt Thursday to extend the Schedule One classification of the drug. Schedule One drugs are a class considered beyond the pale, bad in all circumstances, and deserving of draconian jail terms. The Republicans have been giving temporary extensions to scheduling drugs related to fentanyl, but yesterday Democrats said enough and blocked a bill sponsored by Senator Ron Johnson. Today, Senator Tom Cotton, who supports tough sentences, sparred with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker over the law and order approach versus mass incarceration of mostly people of color. Four years of scheduling fentanyl has actually not seen the response that we want. 
We are in this nation seeing this overwhelming fentanyl crisis. And Mr. Chairman, we're trying to just do the same things we've been doing that caused mass incarceration in the first place, but didn't actually make us safer, as we've seen with the problem with fentanyl. So I'm happy to work on a real solution. Right now, again, for the record, fentanyl is scheduled. Fentanyl analogs are scheduled. And the crisis is getting worse. So we know there are a lot of things we could be doing to solve this problem, but having people beat their chest to try to create more and higher mandatory minimums or more and more scheduling when things are already done, that's just posturing. What we need to do is solve this crisis in America and come together in a bipartisan way to make this nation safer. And not, not to rhetoric that's just not true when this nation already has fentanyl scheduling, fentanyl analogs are scheduled, but the problem is getting worse. It's not just a permanent scheduling. Yesterday, Senator Durbin blocked Senator Grassley's mere 14 month scheduling. The simple fact of the matter is, Democrats will not take this seriously unless they get something in return, like more violent felons released from prison. So I'm happy to have this debate on the floor later today. I have a stack of letters right here from parents whose children were killed by fentanyl sent to Senator Booker, and I'm more than happy to go to the floor and read those into the record if we want to. Again, I'm sorry, Mr. But that's just not true. This, this partisan rhetoric, this partisan warfare, that we all don't have people in all of our states who are dying from this crisis, and so what he's asking for is already done. We have fentanyl scheduled right now, but more and more people are dying. I literally run a city where people are dying from these drugs, and all I hear often is the same things we've been doing for 25 years or on the drug war that just are increasing incarceration. Let's find real solutions and stop accusing ourselves in partisan warfare of things that just aren't true. Right now, fentanyl is scheduled. We've been extending that, that scheduling over and over again. But this problem is going worse. I'd love to work with my colleagues on things that are actually going to solve the problem and not just the rhetoric that works good for partisan left-right debates but doesn't work for actually saving the lives that we need to save. I'm tired of this ridiculous partisanship. Let's solve problems and not stop accusing each other of not having hearts. You're a good man. I'm a good man. Let's see if we can come together and actually solve some problems. I didn't accuse you of anything in your heart. I said the obvious and predictable consequences of the policies you and your party support are the fact that we are now at not mass incarceration, but a 21-year low in the number of inmates in federal prisons. We are not at a 21-year low in the number of overdoses in this country. We are at record highs. Almost twice as many people die every single year as from drug overdoses as died in the uh, Vietnam War. And just look at Right on Crime. Look at, look at the organization called Right on Crime. I'm sorry, this last thing I'll say. They're, you're creating not a real correlation. You, you know this. Just years ago, we were seeing drops in these things, which didn't necessarily correlate. In fact, southern states, red states, that were lowering their prison rates also saw a concomitant lower in crime. Your, your science is, is reckless. And, and if you really want to have a substantive conversation and dialogue on this, I'm open to doing it anytime. I'll come to your office. Heck, I'll fly to your state. <laughs> Let, let's figure out how to solve this problem. And I'll use the data that is collected by right-wing organizations that point to things that work and things that are posturing. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker debating a bill to extend Schedule One status of fentanyl-related drugs. In 2020, more than 56,000 people died of fentanyl-related overdoses in the United States. In this country, nearly 2 million people are in jails and prisons, the highest number in the world. 45% are incarcerated for drug offenses. Thank you.
And that's the news for Friday, September 30th, 2022. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. You can find the news at my website, pauldurienzo.com. Thanks for listening.